You are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the Gospel of St. Mark. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering the following five topics. The Parable of the Wicked Tenants. Second, Paying Tribute to Caesar. Third, Marriage After the Resurrection. Fourth, the widow's might. And finally, the false prophets of the end times. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the chapters of the second gospel from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. And now, here is Dr. George. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the Gospel of Mark, The first portion of his gospel is the Galilean ministry. And then the central portion of the gospel is Jesus' ministry outside Galilee. And now finally we come to the Jerusalem ministry, which actually begins in chapter 11, and which we encounter in chapters 12 and 13 of today's lesson. Jesus tells a parable of the wicked tenants at the beginning of chapter 12. And this is most interesting in light of the fact of what transpires, the sequence of events and conversations that Jesus has immediately following his parable, which he tells of the wicked tenants. We have to recall that Jesus is now in Jerusalem, and so he encounters the Jews, the different Jewish sects, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Herodians, those who were supporters of Herod, were in the city of Jerusalem. And they come to Jesus, who has revealed himself as the Messiah, the Son of God. And they not only pose questions to him, they reveal the hypocrisy, the hatred, the rebellion in their hearts. And Jesus, as they confront him in that confrontation, reveals to them the truth about themselves, as he does with us also in every encounter that we have with the Word of God. Now, these Jews are people of position. They are people of leadership. They are the educated, the aristocracy, the teachers, the lawyers, the civilly prominent in and around Jerusalem. And so we enter into this lesson with Jesus' parable of the wicked tenants. Scripture tells us that he went on to speak to them in parables. He begins by saying, A man planted a vineyard, and of course he is talking about the vineyard of his father. He fenced it round to protect it. The fence is also reference to the law. He dug out a trough for the wine press, which is a reference to the saving work of Christ in the life of grace and the sacramental economy. He built a tower. This is the watchtower of the wine press and of the vineyard. Then he leased it to tenants and went abroad. So the vineyard belongs to the master, to the father. Now what happens is that the vineyard owner sends his servants to collect from the workers, the tenants there, his share of the produce of the vineyard. And what do they do? How do they respond? Jesus says that they seize these servants and they thrash some, they beat others about the head, they kill yet others. They reject them all. Jesus continues, He had, the father that is, still someone left, his beloved son. 
he sent him to them last of all. And this, of course, is revelation of Christ, the new covenant. The last one to come is the son of the vineyard owner, thinking they will respect my son. But those tenants said to each other, this is the heir. Come on, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now Jesus is prophesying his own passion and death in this, and he is also speaking of how the Jews are reacting to him as the revelation of the Father, as the revelation of the Father in the Son. They are questioning Jesus' authority and legitimacy. The Son has come to reestablish order in the vineyard according to the Father's original plan and according to his will. But the tenants who have been in the vineyard for some time have become accustomed to their own power, their own prerogative, their honors, the wealth, the riches of the vineyard which they think belong to them. Now that the heir to the vineyard comes, they want to throw him out because they want to keep for themselves the power, the honor, the riches of the vineyard. So Jesus is prophesying, of course, the passion and death, but he is also speaking about them in their hearts and how they are responding to him. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and make an end of the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this text of scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He is speaking of himself as the cornerstone, of the great edifice of the Father, of the building, of the church. This is the Lord's doing, and we marvel at it. St. Mark records, And they would have liked to arrest him, because they realized that the parable was aimed at them. But they were afraid of the crowds. So they leave him alone for a time. What is happening is that in the countenance of Christ, in his words, his teachings, in his actions, they see a reflection of themselves. They do not like what they see. When Jesus comes, he reveals to us the truth about ourselves. As the church teaches, it is only in the mystery of the word made flesh that the mystery of man becomes clear. It is only in the mystery of Christ, it is only in the truth of Christ, the light of Christ, that we see the truth about ourselves. And because of the sin that is in us, we don't always like what we see. It is as if we are looking into a divine mirror, and we see in all clarity, and in the bright light of Christ, we see our own imperfections. We see our own disfigurement, as it were, the disfigurement which is a result of sin. And because this makes us angry, because it calls us to conversion of heart and to putting to death the sin that is within us, we rear up in anger and we smash the divine mirror, which is what they do to Christ. They crush him in the passion. They don't like what they see. In the Gospel of Matthew, in speaking of this very same parable, Matthew records the concluding words of Jesus. He says, he who falls on this stone, he is referring to himself as the cornerstone, he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This stone, it's the stumbling block. It is the thing which is an obstacle for Jews and Gentiles. They trip over 
the stone, which is the foundation stone of the very building. They don't want the vineyard to be restored to the original plan and will of the Father. They don't want the heir to the vineyard to come and rebuild the vineyard according to the Father's will. It's as if the vineyard owner returns because the Father and the Son are one. It's as if the vineyard owner himself returns in the person of the Son and they throw him out. They kill him because they want to own the vineyard and they want to run it their own way. They reject the kingdom of God in the person of the Son because they want to keep, to cling to their own kingdoms. Now, in telling this parable, it's as if it sets in motion a sequence of events. St. Mark records one event after another, whereby the various groups of Jews, this is the the tenants, the servants of the vineyard, come to Jesus in their hypocrisy, their deceit, their cunning, their hatred, and they try to trip him up. They want to trip him up because they want to find reason to put him to death using the law. In a sense, then, Jesus tells this parable, and what happens next fulfills the very words of the parable. The words of Jesus' parable are fulfilled in their hearing. St. Mark records next, this is verse 13 of chapter 12. This is immediately following the parable of the wicked tenants. Next, they sent to him, Jesus, some Pharisees and some Herodians to catch him out in what he said. Now, this is interesting because the Pharisees and the Herodians are not amenable with each other. What happens in this scene is not unlike what St. Luke records in the Passion of Christ when he speaks of how Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies before, were reconciled that day because they now decided that they had a common enemy, and that was Christ. And so to destroy him, they were willing to set aside their differences so that they could come together and join forces to destroy Christ. There is something similar to this happening in this incident where the Pharisees and the Herodians come together. Now, the Herodians, of course, are the supporters of Herod. And Herod is a puppet of Caesar. His power and authority, which was great, was given to him by Caesar to sort of oppress the Jews, to keep them under his thumb. And so Herod was cruel to the Jews. Herod was also dishonest. He was deceitful. He was so in love with power and with money and with being able to run things the way he wanted them that he was willing to betray his own principles as if he had any because he was willing to betray what he was trying to do in one moment. He would betray the next day or the next week or the next month to simply get what he wanted. It was as if his principles were were in flux. He was a very corrupt ruler. There were supporters of Herod and those supporters were faithful to Caesar. So they come along with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are a Jewish sect which believe deeply in tradition. And the whole length of tradition, not only the written tradition, but there was a great expansive oral tradition that they followed in its minutia. So if they had to pay tithes, for example, Jesus tells us this in the Gospel of St. Matthew, if they had to pay tithes, so particular were they in trying to fulfill the law because they wanted to justify themselves, 
that they would sort out, they would weigh out in a precise way dill and mint and cumin. If you can imagine such a thing, they're so light anyway, it would be difficult to weigh them precisely. And they would do this because they wanted to dot every I and cross every T so that they could see themselves, present themselves to the world as perfect. Now, they knew, they understood that Israel had one God, one Lord alone, and that homage must be paid to him. So there was a tension, a constant tension in Israel. Certainly there was a tension between the Pharisees and the Herodians, because while the Herodians believed that, first and foremost, we must pay tribute to Caesar, Caesar was even viewed as a god, a god-like ruler, the Pharisees wanted Judaism to be established as a religion in its own rights, even within the Roman Empire. And so there was this tension because they did not recognize Caesar as the all-supreme ruler, the absolute ruler, but instead God is the Lord and Master, even though they happen to live under Caesar's rule. So this is interesting. When they come together to Jesus, they pose a question knowing that if Jesus says that we are to pay tribute to Caesar, then the Pharisees will go back to all the Jews and say, he pays tribute to Caesar. He cannot be the Son of God. He cannot be the Messiah. He is not a true Jew if he says that we must acknowledge and respect and submit ourselves to Caesar. On the other hand, if he says, no, we do not submit ourselves to Caesar, we do not pay tribute to him, then the Pharisees will feel that they are vindicated, but the Herodians and their Fuhrer will run and tell Herod, who in turn will communicate that to Caesar. And then they will have justification for putting Jesus to death. So it seems as if the question that they pose to him has no answer that is going to prevent Jesus from being trapped. St. Mark says, recognizing their hypocrisy in their questioning, because they have just said to Jesus, Master, we know you are an honest man and that you are not afraid of anyone. Now, they're speaking the truth. Jesus is not afraid to speak the truth. He is afraid of no one. But he sees the, the mean-spirited attitude in their heart. They are enticing him to speak the truth so that he can trap himself. It's as if they're saying, we know you're not afraid of Caesar. We know you're not afraid of Herod. We know you're not afraid of the Sanhedrin. We know that you say what you really mean because they want him to say something that will condemn himself. They say human rank means nothing to you, and that you teach the way of God in all honesty. And now they present the question, is it permissible to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or not? They get right down to the heart of the matter. St. Mark records, recognizing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, why are you putting me to the test? Hand me a denarius and let me see it. They handed him one and he said, Whose portrait is this? Whose title? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Pay Caesar, then, what belongs to Caesar, and God what belongs to God. And they were amazed at him. We are amazed at this answer. It is a perfect and all-encompassing answer. Why? Because Jesus is saying, so many things. He is saying everything in just a few words in the simplicity of his actions. What is he saying? Number one, what he says elsewhere explicitly, my kingdom is not 
of this world, as is recorded in the Gospel of St. John. He tells those who hear him, you are from below because they're earthly. They are not spiritual in the way they think. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. He says, I have told you already, you will die in your sins. And what are their sins? Their sin is the refusal to submit to the authority of God in his son. Now, he is acknowledging Caesar, but he is not giving him acknowledgement which does not belong to him. Because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, his is a heavenly kingdom, a divine kingdom, the kingdom of God and the person of Christ, everything belongs to God. Everything, therefore, belongs to Christ his Son. As Jesus says, everything the Father has is mine. All he reveals to you, everything that's revealed, down to the order, the civil order, the social orders established within the world, all these things which God has revealed to us and ordained for us, all these things, he says, which he has revealed to you, will be taken from what is mine. All that I have is yours, Jesus says. And all that you have is mine, and in them I am glorified. All order and authority on earth, in a certain way then, belongs to God. Its origin is in God. Its destiny or purpose is in God, because everything is ordained according to God's plan for our salvation. Worldly authority is meant to be a sign and to represent God's order and power among us. Unfortunately, because of sin, so often human power and authority is corrupted. It's distorted. But authority on earth does not derive its moral legitimacy from itself. It is derived from God because everything belongs to God. As the psalmist says, this is God speaking through the psalmist, all the creatures of the forest are mine already. The animals on the mountains in the thousands. In other words, what sacrifice can we offer to God? The Israelites offered the sacrifice of animals. He says, they already belong to me. You're offering back to me what I've already placed in your hands. It's the same thing in the New Covenant. The bread and wine that we bring to the altar of God, he has placed in our hands. I know every bird in the air. Whatever moves in the field is mine. If I am hungry, God says, I shall not tell you since the world and all it holds already belongs to me. And because it belongs to God and Christ, Christ tells us, everything that you have is mine and everything that I have is yours. He gives it to us. He hands it over to us for our good. It's for God's plan and the way we live this life. Now, Christ fulfills all righteousness. As St. Paul tells us in his letter to the Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son born of a woman, born a subject to the law, to redeem the subjects of the law. God becomes man. God takes our humanity to himself. The order of redemption, which is contained, it is completed, fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, the order of redemption revealed in the person of Christ, restores and also elevates the order of creation, so that God becomes man and he subjects himself to his own laws for a certain time. This is part of the mystery. 
and in subjecting himself, everything is redeemed. Everything is restored to God's original plan. And in that restoration, it's actually elevated. It now serves to the glory of God's name. Therefore, we must follow the example of Christ, as St. Luke, in speaking of this, says that it happened that at the time of Caesar Augustus, it's no accident that he makes a point of reference to Caesar in speaking of the incarnation of Christ, that Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be made of which the whole inhabited world would be numbered. He tells us Joseph set out from the town of Nazareth in Galilee for Judea to David's town called Bethlehem. And this is part of God's plan because Christ, the son of David, God incarnate, is to be born then in Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph, with Jesus in the womb of Mary, fulfill all law. Jesus fulfills the law in all its righteousness. He fulfills natural law and eternal law. Everything is fulfilled in the person of Christ. So there is a way in which, in Jesus' answer, he is respectfully acknowledging Caesar because God has ordained human authority on earth, an authority that has its origin and purpose in God. For this reason, we begin to understand how important it is that all human authority and power always seek the common good and that it employs morally licit means to do so because, as we know, we suffer under the corruption of human power and authority all the time. It's not carried out according to God's plan. But when it is, it serves man. And the goods that God has placed at our disposal, it serves the human family, it serves the order of society. When human authority is carried forward according to God's own design and plan, it helps man. It's for our benefit. Therefore, there is a legitimate way in which we must pay tribute to Caesar, so to speak. In other words, taxes are legitimate. Jesus is not saying we should not pay taxes. He is saying that we pay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. The things of this world are used in this world for here and now. Yes, God is our Lord and Master. He is over all. But we respect God by living obediently and respectfully within the order that he himself has ordained. By paying tribute to Caesar, not as if he is some kind of God or Lord or Master, but by paying taxes, in other words, knowing that peace and justice and charity demand that so that there can be a distribution of the goods. Taxes can also be a corruption in society. But if they're fairly established, we in justice have to pay taxes. It's part of the common good of man. When we do this by giving respect and obeying the civil authorities among which we live, we are giving respect to God. We are helping to sanctify the world, and we are directing all things back to God. The Church tells us in this regard that man should not submit his personal freedom in an absolute manner, in an absolute manner. Yes, we must submit ourselves to earthly authority to our parents, to our teachers, to our bosses, to the government, to the governor, to the president, to our senators. But we don't do this in any absolute manner. 
only to God do we submit ourselves in an absolute way. So, we do not in any absolute manner submit ourselves to any earthly power, the Church says, but only to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Caesar is not the Lord. Caesar is a sign and symbol of worldly power and worldly authority. Caesar is not the Lord, but Caesar has been permitted according to God's own design. There are Caesars in every age and place. The Church believes that the key, the center, and the purpose of the whole of man's history is to be found in its Lord and Master. Therefore, Christians must live respectfully under Caesar, not because we love Caesar, but precisely because we love and honor and respect God. Thanks for listening to Dr. George on Real Presence Radio. For more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. Up next, Dr. George will be covering Marriage After the Resurrection, starting in Mark chapter 12, verse 18. And now, here's Dr. George. St. Mark then turns to the Sadducees and he says, beginning in verse 18, Then, after this interaction between the Pharisees and the Herodians and Jesus, he says, Then some Sadducees, who deny there is a resurrection, came to Jesus and they put this question to him, Master, Moses prescribed for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no child, the man must marry the widow to raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, and then he goes on to explain how each of these marry her one after another, dying, leaving no children. And they conjure up, they present to Jesus this sort of theological conundrum, as it were, this almost ridiculous kind of impossibility. And their own line of questioning reveals the hypocrisy in their hearts. Why? Because we have to remember that the Sadducees were a priestly aristocracy, and they believed in the written word. Essentially, they based all of their beliefs on the five books of Moses, which would be pretty much the Pentateuch, the first books of the Bible. And anything that was not explicitly revealed in those books, they did not embrace. So they were at odds with the Pharisees who had a very extensive oral tradition, many laws, many prescriptions, and so forth. The reason that the Sadducees, as Scripture tells us, did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, they did not believe in angels or spirits, is because they couldn't find reference to this in the books of Moses. They come to Jesus asking about the resurrection, and they don't even believe in the resurrection in the first place. They're just posing a question, and it's disingenuous of them. It's insincere, not to mention rather ridiculous. It's far-fetched. It's too far-fetched. So they present this impossibility, and they want to know whose wife will she be at the end since she is married to seven different men. And Jesus says to them, very poignant. Surely the reason why you are wrong in their line of questioning is that you understand neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now that would have stung because if there was a group that believed that they understood the written scriptures, it was the Sadducees. And what are the books of Moses? By and large, they speak of the power of God, the saving power of God. He brings Israel out of their bondage from Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. The books are about the marvelous events in the salvation history 
of early Israel. And Jesus says to them, Surely you do not understand either the written word, which they profess to have practically committed to memory, and you do not understand the power of God. If there's two things that they would have tried to lay claim to possessing, it's these two. This is Jesus' answer to them. He goes on to speak about heaven, really, about heaven. Now, this had to have amazed his listeners because he indicates here in a somewhat peripheral way that he certainly knows all about heaven because he has come down from heaven. And as we know, the only one who can go back up to heaven is the one who has come down from heaven in the first place, as Jesus reveals of himself explicitly in other places. He goes on to tell us then about what it's like to be in heaven. Can you imagine they're having trouble even believing that there can be any kind of life after death? And here is someone among them who can actually tell them exactly about that. When they rise from the dead, men and women do not marry. So Jesus is telling us that we do not have marriage in heaven in the same way or knowledge of it that we have on earth. So we are not married in heaven in the earthly way. And some people find this very discouraging, very disheartening. They say, it upsets me to think that I won't be married to my husband or I won't be married to my wife when I'm dead, as if to say that God would somehow give us less than the love and joy that we have on earth. But as he makes clear, earthly marriage has its own purpose. It is a sign and it is an instrument pointing to and helping us to attain the greater mystical marriage which God has in store for us in heaven. Jesus continues, no, they are like the angels in heaven. Jesus does not say that we are angels in heaven. This is another problem. People say they know the teachings of Christ in the scriptures, but so often we hear out of the mouths of well-meaning Christians, things like, after the death of a loved one, they'll say, don't worry anymore about this person because she's an angel now. Especially we say this of children. Perhaps they tragically die young as children. And the relatives of that child go on saying to people, well, we know she's an angel now. We're not angels. Angels are pure spiritual beings. We are creatures of God just as angels are creatures of God. But he has created us in the mystery of his plan, as having body and soul. And as God has revealed, we will have our bodies in heaven. Our bodies will be glorified and they will share in our heavenly life. We will not be angels. Angels don't have bodies. But he does say we will be like the angels. We will be purely spiritual. Certainly, there will be ways in which we are like the angels, but not angels. Jesus is telling us something about heaven. He says, now about the dead rising again. Have you never read in the book of Moses, he says? This is the people that think that they know the book of Moses by heart. Have you never read in the book of Moses? And Jesus is about to quote it. In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him and said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is the God, not of the dead, but of the living. They should have known this. Jesus is saying, If you are going to devote yourself solely to the book of Moses, he says, even there, God was already speaking to us about a resurrection to new life because he revealed of his beloved people, I am a God, not of the dead, but of the living. And God's word is eternal. It's eternal truth. So Jesus says, you are very much mistaken. This is why he says, you know neither 
the scriptures, nor the power of God. This God who did these amazing things for the Israelites in bringing them out of Egypt. So there is a mysterious way in which, according to Jesus' own teaching, we are not married in heaven, certainly not according to the way we understand marriage on earth, but we are also married in heaven, but it is a mystical kind of marriage. It's the marriage, it's the wedding feast of the Lamb, as we talked in our last lesson. There is a way in which we are like the angels, but also not like the angels. There is a way in which, in the mystery of heaven, we will be in the communion of persons, and yet in the solitude of God, in the eternal word, and yet in the eternal silence, to speak of something St. John of the Cross teaches. There is a way in which we will be ever so fruitful in heaven, and yet perfectly at rest. It's the mystery of heaven. And it's a very rich mystery. Now, we talked in the last lesson about how marriage is a sign and instrument, a sign pointing to a heavenly marriage, and an instrument, a life of grace to help us attain to that promise, to help us get to heaven. But marriage is not the only sign and instrument of this reality. The consecrated life, those who take vows of perpetual chastity, Also, this life is a privileged, a unique expression of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, the two, the state of marriage and the state of virginity or perpetual chastity, do not stand in contradiction with each other. They are complementary to each other. Each one speaks in a different way to the other about the other. And there is a wholeness in the different states of life. There is a wholeness in the mystery of Christ if we look at all of these states together. Now, those who live, we say is the unmarried life, but we call it sometimes the unmarried life. We will say, she never got married, she became a nun. Sisters, those who are consecrated to God, live a deeply mystical kind of marriage a life of marriage on earth. It's just not the earthly kind of marriage which we are accustomed to speaking about. They take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience in imitation of Christ himself, who lived a life of poverty, of chastity, and of obedience. It is not that they denigrate by their choice of life or reject the goods of this life. Marriage is a good of this life. Homes, family life, But in a sense, they turn away from their family, not by way of rejecting their family, but by way of more fully embracing and more exclusively embracing life in God and the family of God. They hand their lives over totally as lives of prayer and sacrifice for the sake of Christ's church. Therefore, those who live such a life are a transcendent sign. Marriage is a sign, both earthly, but in a sense also transcendent. But those who live the consecrated life are an especially transcendent sign of the church's love for Christ, of that bond with God that takes precedence over all other bonds, both familial and social. Therefore, their marriage on earth speaks to us in an eloquent way about the marriage for which we are all destined in heaven. St. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, speaks of this when he talks about the unmarried man, he says, who gives his mind 
to the Lord's affairs, and this could be a priest, a monk. The unmarried man gives his mind to the Lord's affairs and to how he can please the Lord. But the man who is married to a wife in an earthly marriage gives his mind to the affairs of the world and how he can please his wife. He says he is divided in mind. This is how many of us, we even feel this tension sometimes, this division of mind. The world, our family life is pulling on us. We have duties of our state and life to fulfill. And yet, we are pulled. We know that the Lord is calling us to be faithful in our prayer life, for example. And so we live not separated from the world. In a sense, there is a blessing and privilege in this because those who are separated from the world, that is, through a stricter separation, can devote their lives more totally to Christ and to his church. St. Paul continues, so to the unmarried and the virgin. And he goes on to say how they devote themselves totally in their mind and heart and spirit to the Lord, while the woman who is married gives her mind to her husband and to worldly affairs. And she too then is divided in mind. St. Paul concludes by saying, I am saying this only to help you, not to put a bridle on you, but so that everything is as it should be. The consecrated life then is, to use the church's own words, an unfolding of baptismal grace. It is a powerful sign of the supremacy of our bond with Christ, a bond that all of us should have, whether we are married, single, or whether we have taken vows, religious vows. There should be a certain way in which our bond with Jesus Christ is supreme over all of these things. As we said in our last lesson, the teaching, the book that Archbishop Fulton Sheen himself wrote about marriage, where he said it takes three to get married, the husband, the wife, and Jesus Christ, three persons. There is a way in which there should always be the person of Christ in our life, in the way we think, in the decisions that we make, in how we act. So this consecrated life then is this unfolding of baptismal grace, a powerful sign of the supremacy of our bond with Christ, and the ardent expectation of his return. Those who are consecrated to Christ, monks, sisters, religious, every day of their lives, it's as if their eyes are set on the horizon. They are watching for the coming of Christ again. Their heart and mind is set on the bridegroom. And that is how they live their lives. Therefore, this kind of life is a sign which also recalls that marriage is a reality of this present age and is passing away, as the church tells us. And Jesus says, because the marriage that we shall live in heaven is a transcendent, it is a far superior kind of marriage. We will not be disappointed. We will be fulfilled in this marriage. So whether we are married now in an earthly way, that marriage is a sign of this transcendent reality and an instrument. And those who live a consecrated life set apart from the world in a particular or unique way, their life is a sign and instrument, which for them is a privileged form of expression of this beautiful mystery that we are all destined for. And as I said, they live their lives totally at the service of Christ and his church. It's not about wanting to be outside the world, get away from people, wanting to be self-absorbed. In fact, it's quite to the contrary. Their entire life and all the potential goods of their life, including family life and marriage 
and many other things because of the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. All of these are surrendered over to Christ. They empty themselves and they are at the service of Christ throughout their lives. Thanks for listening to Dr. George on Real Presence Radio. For more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering the following two topics, the widow's might, and then she will move into the false prophets of the end times. And now, back to Dr. George. And then finally, we have several encounters with the scribes. Now, the scribes were the scholars of the age. They were the teachers of the law. They were sort of the university professors, so to speak, the academia. They were the ones, yes, they copied the different written scriptures and so on, but they had their heads in the books all the time. And they considered themselves privileged, more enlightened, more educated than everyone else. They believed that they understood truth and justice and peace and love in a way superior to anyone else's understanding. And Jesus speaks of this when he says in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who like to walk about in long robes. They're the ones who were called rabbis. Rabbi meant teacher, lord, master. So he said they like to walk about in long robes, to be greeted respectfully in the market squares, to be recognized, acknowledged, to take the front seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. These are the men, he says, who devour the property of widows and for show offer long prayers. The more severe will be the sentence that they receive. Jesus is pointing out the hypocrisy of their way in life. They act as if they're the only ones who really have a grasp of truth. And he is pointing out how little they actually understand and how little they live that out. What makes their hypocrisy even worse is the fact that they do this in the name of religion. They do this in the name of God. Jesus says how hard it is for the rich. It could be someone who is rich in wealth or money or someone who is rich in supposedly intellectual riches or whatever, he says how hard it is for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because we forget how to be little like children. We do not have that poverty of spirit which the widow has. What happens next is that Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the treasury. Many of the rich put in a great deal. A poor widow came in and put in two small coins, the equivalent of a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, In truth I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all who have contributed to the treasury. For they have put in money they could spare, but she in her poverty has put in all that she possessed, all that she had to live on. She hands over her whole livelihood her whole security. She is, she is rich, although she's very poor. She only has a penny. She is richer than all those who have other kinds of riches, honor and power and money and everything. She is richer than all of them because of her poverty of spirit. While those who think themselves rich or who in fact have monetary riches, Jesus is saying are the poorest of them all because they don't understand the truth about justice and charity, nor do they live it out. They undermine the very principles that they profess to teach everyone else because of their own poor actions. So it is the widow who has this poverty of spirit. And what is poverty of spirit? 
It's a number of things, but it is a childlike attitude. It is total confidence in God, total dependence upon God for everything, total trust in God that He will provide for absolutely all our needs. Only the truly poor in spirit are so detached from all worldly things that they can actually hand over whatever they have into the treasury. The widow hands over her security. Her penny is her security. It's her bread for tomorrow. She hands that over. She puts it into the treasury, into the heavenly treasury, the temple, which is in her midst. She hands it over to God, completely trusting that he will provide tomorrow's bread. It's really it's a fulfillment even of the Our Father, where the Lord teaches us to pray to the Father that he give us today our daily bread. But we don't open ourselves up all the time to God's wanting to hand that over to us to provide for absolutely all of our needs. The church in her teaching on this says that Jesus bids his apostles to renounce all they have for his sake and for that of the gospel. Shortly before his passion, Jesus gave the apostles the example of the poor widow of Jerusalem. By his teaching, he gives them this example. The church goes on to say, the precept of detachment from riches is obligatory for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Only by handing over the earthly kingdom in our midst do we then embrace the heavenly kingdom. And that requires great poverty of spirit. It's very difficult. It is a very difficult grace. We have trouble. We certainly have more than almost all of us, more than the penny the widow has. It's hard for us to part with even half of what we have. We tend to want to cling to these things to keep them. We have a larder, so to speak, of our own provisions to make sure that we can take care of ourselves. And the Lord is the one who takes care of us. But we always have this thing in us that we want to be self-reliant. And in being self-reliant, we're really rather stingy with the world and we're stingy in accepting God's graces that he wants to give us. St. Paul says, anyone who sows sparingly will reap sparingly as well. The scribes, the Pharisees, those who are putting money into the temple treasury are sowing sparingly. Anyone who sows generously will reap generously as well because God loves a cheerful giver. And he is perfectly able to enrich you with every grace, St. Paul says, so that you always have enough for all kinds of good work. The widow entirely trusts that God will supply for her everything that she needs to go on living. He will take care of all of her needs. Finally, we come into the last question of the lesson, which deals with chapter 13 of the Gospel of Mark. And this touches on Jesus' teaching of the end times. What will happen before the end, as the end approaches, as we move into the end, and so on. Now, there's a great deal of teaching here, and many of these things we will touch in other lessons in other Gospels. It would be impossible, even in spending an entire hour on chapter 13 of the Gospel of Mark, could we cover all that Jesus reveals in this section. But there is one thing that I'd like to spend a few minutes on, and this is Jesus' teaching on the false prophets and teachers that will come among us, especially in the end times. Those who are saying, I am the Christ. I am he. In verses 5 and 6, St. Mark writes, Then Jesus began to tell them of the end times, Take care that no one deceives you. Many will come using my name and saying, I am he. And they will deceive many. 
And a little later, he says, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and produce signs and portents to deceive the elect if that were possible. You must be on your guard. Jesus says, I have given you full warning. Who are these false prophets and false teachers? Yes, it could be a false messiah. But a false prophet or teacher is anyone who claims to know or promises a peace, truth, love, wisdom, or knowledge, which is false because it's contrary to Christ. The prophet Ezekiel speaks of this. And talking of the false prophets, he speaks of the people who discover that the house is starting to crumble, fall apart. And so good people come in and they try to repair the house. They try to rebuild the walls so that the house won't collapse. But the false prophets come in and they say, let me take care of that. And they quickly plaster over the walls and hide the cracks. They hide the fact that the walls are falling apart underneath the plaster. And God says, see what I will do now. And he sends this rainstorm. And the rain, of course, washes off the plaster and the whole house crumbles. The whole house falls to the ground. It's because they allow themselves to be deluded by the false prophets who smooth over the ruin of the house that is occurring. They want to patch it up with things that are false. We live in an age of moral relativism, in an age when people insist on absolute autonomy of conscience. If I think it's right, then it's okay for me to do. And we separate ourselves from the wisdom and knowledge and truth of God as revealed in his son. We can find in all the arenas of human existence false prophets and false teachers. We find them in the universities. We find them in science, in medicine, in technology. In all of these arenas, there is a tendency to divorce themselves from an authentic ethics, from making decisions, from trying to see things through the eyes of God from seeking the truth upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, upon a foundation where Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. Now, Satan rarely attacks us frontally. He, as St. Paul says, comes disguised as an angel of light. So when false teachers and false prophets come among us, we don't always quickly and clearly recognize them right away. In fact, they are like wolves that come in sheep's clothing, to use God's own analogy in speaking of this. And St. Paul talks about how Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. He says it is nothing extraordinary then when his servants disguise themselves as servants of uprightness. So those false prophets and teachers who come to us saying these things are the very ones who claim that they have the answer. They claim that what they say is a higher truth, a higher form of justice, of charity, of wisdom, of peace, whatever it may be. We can find even false prophets in religion. And we should not be surprised at this because it is the church which is the sacrament of our salvation, the sign and instrument of God's saving work in the world. Therefore, Satan is very interested in penetrating inside the walls of the church and winning over his own false prophets or false teachers. What happens is that we can easily be deluded 
Because what Satan does is he is only too willing to tell a few truths to win us over and win his trust so that we will finally be convinced by the lie when he does tell it. He sort of leads us along. Something doesn't sound too bad. This sounds close enough to the truth. And he leads us along until he leads us to something which is so wrong and so false. But already we have dropped our guard. We have gone along. We've gone too far with him. And so we get seduced by him. We get entrapped. And then he puts us to death in this way. There are false prophets who don't recognize themselves, of course, as false prophets. They may even be malicious, but they think that somehow they have their own driving agenda and they're trying to save the world with their own vision of what it is that Christ must have meant to say or teach. What happens is that it comes down to this, that we must have what Scripture calls an obedience of faith. We must humbly submit ourselves to divine revelation. The church tells us that by faith man completely submits his intellect and will to God. Sacred scripture calls this human response to God, obedience of faith. Something which St. Paul talks about in his letter to the Romans. Now, ignorance of God is the principle and explanation of all moral as well as all intellectual deviations. For example, we live in an age where we call abortion a choice. We call divorce peace. We call homosexual unions or the right to homosexual unions happiness. We call assisted suicide rest. We call contraception love. And all of these are lies. They're false thinking. They come from the mouths of false prophets, of false teachers. Those who believe in these things are ignorant of God. They are ignorant of divine revelation in the person of the Son. As the Church tells us, the principle and explanation of all moral deviations is ignorance of God. So, how do we prevent our being seduced by false prophets or teachers? Or how do we prevent our becoming one of them ourselves? There are people who who might rank among the false prophets and teachers, but unwittingly so. They have been seduced and they're going along with something. So we have to learn how to be how to be careful. It's not simply a matter of being imperfect in knowledge sometimes or incorrectly understanding. This happens to all of us because we grow in the truths of our faith throughout our lifetime. What makes us collaborate with false teachers and false prophets is the resistance, the stubborn resistance in our hearts and the lack of humility and obedience of faith in us so that we don't embrace divine revelation as we encounter it. How, how can we avoid being seduced by these? First of all, we must, of course, form our consciences according to the fullness of truth, according to the fullness of divine revelation, all that has been revealed by Christ. We must know the word of God. We must grow in our knowledge of the Word of God. We must do as the psalmist says. We must meditate on the Word of God day and night. As the psalmist says, Your Word, Lord, is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. I do not forget your law. This must be the attitude of our own heart. We must believe in divine revelation. This is a stumbling block for some. As the Church says, divine revelation, whether written or handed down, 
and which the Church proposes for our belief as divinely revealed. It's very hard for us in our pride to be willing to listen to the voice of Christ in the voice of His Church, in the voice of His teaching apostles. In point of fact, we know, doctrine teaches us, that the Church is Catholic, Catholic meaning universal, keeping with the whole in its totality. The Church is Catholic, which means, she's Catholic in a twofold sense, First, that she has received from Jesus Christ the fullness of the means of salvation willed by God. And that includes, of course, the correct and complete confession of our faith, the full sacramental life, and ordained ministry and apostolic succession. And in fact, the Church was Catholic on the day of Pentecost, and she will always be Catholic in this sense until the end of time, until the second coming of Christ. But she is also Catholic in that in possessing this infinite treasure, she goes out to the world because it's a treasure that is not intended for her alone. It is intended for the salvation of the world. She is constantly trying to hand over the treasury of Christ to others. And this is where the problem is because others reject it. When she says that I am Catholic, that in the Catholic Church is a full sacramental life, there are those who right away rear up, not unlike the Pharisees and the scribes, the Herodians, all the people Jesus encountered. He revealed the fullness of the truth and they reared up. They were like the tenants in the vineyard. It's like, wait a minute, you're going to tell me I have to think in a different way now? You're going to tell me I have to do things differently now? But it's the master of the vineyard who has come to reestablish the vineyard in its full and correct order. So we have this tremendous gift. So we must then Humbly submit ourselves. We must be docile in spirit, poor in spirit, as the widow is. And finally, we must witness to these truths. We have a grave obligation to go and seek truth, always to be seeking the truth. God doesn't hold it against us if we haven't yet encountered it. But as soon as he reveals something to us, we then become accountable. So having encountered the fullness of the truth, we must embrace it. We must embrace it and we must live it in our words, and in the choices we make, in how we live our lives. This is, then, to build our house on rock, with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of that house. The Lord himself says, it is the cornerstone that is rejected, but it is the cornerstone of God's great edifice of his building, the church. And we shall all marvel at this mystery. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Please tune in next time while Dr. George continues in the Gospel of St. Mark with the following three topics. God's plan for our redemption. Second, the death of Jesus. And finally, the sorrowful mysteries of our Lord's Passion. For further information, please visit us online at sacredheartproductions.org.